When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, if you're just jumping in right here, this might be a little odd for you. So let me explain the context right now. John the Apostle is given a vision of heaven. And what he is observing in the book of Revelation is the end of the world. And this is symbolized by a scroll that is sealed with seven seals. And it it's represents the plan of God for the end. God's plan to bring not just judgment, but also redemption to the world. And the only person that is found worthy to open that scroll, meaning to inaugurate those events, is the Lamb. You might know this, that Jesus in the Bible is often compared to a lamb, like a sacrificial lamb. So... Jesus is opening these seals, and every time he opens one of these seals, you get a picture of what is going to happen at the end of the world. And you can go back and listen to the details of this, but we're covering a seven-year period at the end that we call the tribulation. This is kind of shorthand for what the Bible describes, that the last seven years of the world are going to be terrible. The word for revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. So when we say and call something an apocalypse, we're comparing it to what the book of Revelation describes. We believe that the church will have been what we called raptured, caught up into heaven before these things happen. I'm not going to explain why we believe that, but uh, I've talked about it at length. You can visit the website and check that out. But what happens after that? There's several things, three big things that we've seen. Number one, there's the rise of an evil empire that is called Babylon. We will discuss again later if that's a symbolic name or a literal name. Interesting discussion that we're going to have. But an evil empire is going to rise up and conquer the world called Babylon. And it's not going to be a peaceful transition. It's going to be war and death and famine, the famous four horsemen of the apocalypse. Secondly, persecution of Jews and those who come to faith. While the church will be caught up, there will be many Jews and Gentiles that will believe in Jesus during this time and they will be oppressed and downtrodden by this evil empire. And the last thing we saw in chapter 6, the last seal, was a terrible earthquake that shook the whole world and every island and every mountain was displaced and people were crying out in fear of the wrath of the Lamb. In chapter 7, was a call, a pause to make sure that those that belong to God will indeed make it through this tribulation period. So it's kind of a parenthesis as far as the flow goes, where he's saying, don't worry, there will be those that survive this and God will have a people on the earth even then. But Revelation chapter 8 opens with silence in heaven. He opens the seventh seal, the last seal, and unrolls the scroll. And there is silence for about a half hour in heaven. By the way, so much for the idea that heaven is timeless, because there you go, 30 minutes. What could cause heaven to be silent for half an hour? Heaven is not a quiet place, never mind your cartoons that you've seen. 
There's angels shouting and worshiping. There's songs that are being sung. Even from the throne of God, there's constant thunder and lightning and trumpets and shouts going out. Heaven is not a boring place, friends. It's full of people that are worshiping the Lord. And in God's presence, it's like being in the middle of a storm. But silence reigns for about a half hour. We used to have a minute of silence in school every day. And that minute felt like, you know, 45 minutes when you're 11, 12 years old, right? We have, we'll do this in the prayer meeting sometimes. I say, guys, let's, be, let's just be silent. And I'll, you know, kind of look at my watch. All right, we're going to be quiet for two minutes. And after like 45 seconds, people start like looking up, you know. <laughs> like, what's, oh, this has been a long time. Shouldn't we be doing something? It's like, we don't know how to be silent. I don't think that's unique to us as like 21st century Americans. I think it's just people, right? The idea of standing still for a half hour and being silent especially in a place like heaven. What is this? Well, you will recall the, the previous chapter, there are angels that were holding back the winds of God and they were saying, wait, before the next thing comes to afflict the earth and the sea and the trees, let's make sure that we have marked and sealed those that belong to Jesus. They said, Hold on, before the next thing let's make sure we got God's people safeguarded. Well, the next thing is about to happen. The seventh seal the earth, the sea, and the trees are going to be afflicted. What is about to happen is so shocking that heaven has nothing to say. The four living creatures with the four faces and the six wings, the 24 elders that stand before the Lord have nothing to say in awe and in shock at what is about to be poured out on the world, which are the next judgments. Heaven spends all of its time crying out, holy, holy, holy to the Lord. But when Jesus opens that last seal, and you could say, unrolls the scroll, that's the last one, and they see what's about to happen, they're just in awe. They, they can't say anything. There's a reverence. There's a fear there. And seven angels are given trumpets that they're going to sound. Now it says here, the seven angels who stand before God. This is perhaps the only place in the Bible that gives some credence to the idea of the seven archangels. You maybe have heard that. That comes from intertestamental liter literature. Uh, they all have names, Uriel, Raphael, Sakariel, right? We only know about Gabriel and Michael, and Michael is the only one in the Bible that is called an archangel. But here it says that there are seven. So whether it was the seven that was familiar to the Hebrew tradition, or whether it was just seven that were prepared for this purpose, it hardly matters. They are given seven trumpets, and these are going to be the next seven judgments of the book of Revelation. You started with the seven seals. The seventh seal is opened. Now we're going to the seven trumpets. And after that, we're going to go to the seven bowl or vile judgments. Like not vile like nasty, vile like a cup or, a, or something that you would pour out. And then we have this picture where an angel approaches the incense altar. So, I mean, keep the picture here. We're still in God's heavenly throne room, right? With the sea of glass and the emerald rainbow and all the rest. And there's silence. And there's seven angels standing there with trumpets. And now proceeds one angel to the incense altar. The Bible makes it very clear that heaven, God's throne room, is the template and design that was given to Moses for how they would make the tabernacle and later the temple. It's not that the tabernacle, you know, we made it and now God rearranged his house. God said, I want you to make it this way because this is what my house looks like in heaven. So what you see, you can read about it in Exodus chapter 30. We talked about it at great length uh, on a Wednesday night a while back. This was the incense altar. 
This altar would have been about the size of my pulpit here, about the size and dimensions. It was made of gold. You would take coals and put coals on the top of it, and then you would take the incense, which was powdered, and you would sprinkle that on the coals, and there would be incense rising up. And the incense was a special incense, not to be made anywhere else under pain of death. Point being, this is what God's house smells like, and nothing else is to smell like that. Well, it appears that there's something like that in heaven as well. And an angel approaches this incense altar, which in the tabernacle was right before the veil of the temple, which kept back the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's throne. So this is right before God's throne, this incense altar. And the incense, we've seen this already, represents the prayers of the saints. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, Let my prayers be like incense before you, and the lifting of my hands like the evening sacrifice. So John and the others are are pulling on this language, or maybe this language was inspired to David, because this is what it's like. That in heaven, the incense that rises up is the prayers of God's people. Which reminds us of the fifth seal. Do you remember this one? You had the four horsemen, then you opened the fifth seal, and there were martyrs under the altar. And they were crying out. They're saying, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? And God told them just to wait a little while longer. Under the altar. It seems that that's the incense altar. Where all their prayers would go. You could picture these people on their knees before the Lord crying out, how long? And it's compared to incense. Every time a Christian cries out to God for justice, a little more incense is sprinkled on that altar. Every time a Christian cries out and says, Lord, how long until you regard me as righteous, until you remove my enemies, all those prayers in the Old Testament. I don't like it when pastors try to protect the Bible from itself and say things like, now those imprecatory psalms that David gave, they're not for us to pray. Yes, they are. When David said things, Lord, strike my enemies on the jaw, tear them down, remove their place, blot their name out of the book. Well, that's for David. It's not for us. Yes, it is. Because when you are, it's easy to say that when you've got a good life. Much harder when you've watched somebody, let's say, march into your village and burn your house down and rape your wife and run off with your children to train them up for their army. Then you're going to tell them, oh, don't pray that. All those prayers and cries out for justice, God hears them. They're like incense rising up before him. When the Jews first drove the Christians out of Jerusalem, You better believe they were crying out to the Lord. How do you think those early Christians felt? They used to meet in Solomon's portico in the temple when they were no longer welcome there. And then they get together as a church and they have to read Psalm 84 that says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. Even the sparrow finds a place. They're kept out from God's house. And they know they're in Christ, but they're saying, Lord, the Messiah came and they've driven out his people. Or in Rome, you know... (laughs) In these days when everyone is trying to build up Western culture, which I don't have necessarily a problem with that, but you want to go back and start building up Rome. That's when we were a real cult. That's when we took God's people and fed them to the lions, man. They would use them as as cannon fodder for the gladiator games. They would reenact battles and dress the Christians up with fake swords that weren't sharp and spears that didn't have a point on them so that they could get butchered by the gladiators in front of everybody. They'd dip them in candle wax and light them on fire and they'd mock them and say, you are the light of the world. You don't think those Christians were crying out for justice? Lord, this isn't right. Haven't you felt that sometimes? This isn't fair. It's not good. Lord, how long are you going to let this go on? And a little more incense was sprinkled on the altar. The Lord heard that. How about when Islam first started terrorizing the world? 
and they swept through what was Christian territory at the time. Muslims will try to deceive you on this. Muhammad didn't rise up until the 600s AD. Well, oh, this has always been our religion. It most certainly has not. That was Christian territory, Christian land, Af Northern Africa, Syria. These were Christian places up into Turkey, south of Spain. And here comes Islam with the point of a sword destroying the church, setting up mosques and worshiping a different God instead of Jesus, building a place on the top of the Temple Mount that inside the, is written on the ceiling, God forbid that Allah should have a son. Even today when we see these terrorists, we see ISIS or whoever it might be, we say, Lord, it's not fair. It's not right. The Lord hears that and a little more incense goes on the altar. You could go all the way through history when Protestants were being burned at the stake for calling out for the belief in salvation by grace through faith. How about during the French Revolution when they went through the streets and they dragged anybody that believed in Jesus, Catholic or Protestant, and they all had their heads chopped off because this is a new age of liberty and freedom and we're going to cast off the shackles of these gods. Lord, help us. Lord, please, every mother hiding in a basement with her child, please, Jesus, help us. A little more incense goes on that altar. Even to today, through all the tyrannies of the 20th century, every gulag, every killing field, every concentration camp where God's people were sent. Don't let them remove that from your history, by the way. The Christians were taken there too. As they cried out, Lord, this isn't right. This isn't fair. God heard that. And that incense rose up before the Lord. Every world tragedy, every abusive parent, every school shooting, when people cry out and say, God, you got to do something about this. God sees it all. And there's going to come a day when justice will be poured out on the world and retribution will be brought against the wicked. Do you see this? The angel takes this censer of incense and takes coals from the altar. And the smoke rises up. Imagine all the prayers of all the saints from all of history burning like smoke before the Lord. Then he takes it off the altar into a censer or a fire pan and he hurls it to the earth. And it says thunder and lightning and rumbling and flashes and an earthquake. It was so bad. Whatever God was about to do when they saw it in that scroll, even the angels caught their breath. Because what does the world deserve for all of those things that I just laid out? What does the oppressor deserve? What does the tyrant deserve? What does the individual that uses the, the, the climate of a tyrant in order to have their own way with their neighbors, what do they deserve? He pours it out on the world. And you see in verse 5, this is theophanic language. What I mean by that is this is language of a theophany. When God appears in the Bible, this is the kind of language it describes. Because God has come to earth to mete out his justice. God sees and God watches and God waits. How reassuring to know that Jesus sees all these things. That God cares the atheist loves to scoff and say, well, why hasn't God done anything about this? Because when God steps in to do something about this, it means the end of the world. You cannot sit here and blame God for not putting out justice on one hand and then come over here and say, how dare God judge anybody on the other hand? The Lord sees, Psalm 56 verse 8 says, you have kept count of my tossings and put all my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? Jesus sees, even the things that don't rise to the scale of what I described in your own life, the unfairness, 
The injustice, the pain, the persecution, the mockery, the scoffing. The Lord sees that and it rises up like incense before him. But yet how sobering to realize what that actually means. The end is coming swiftly and you ought to take comfort that Jesus sees that. But you also should take care. One author I read a, a while ago, I can't remember his name, but he said, you need to take care when you pray for the return of Jesus because you're praying for the end of the world. And that's what we're about to read about. You have this symbolic picture of what happens in heaven. Jesus opens up the seven seals. The heaven gets silent. You can almost imagine somebody saying, oh no. You know, sometimes we read Revelation because we get excited about like end time stuff, which is all fine. But you need to have a sober heart when you talk about these things, guys. Don't be flippant. This, is, this, this caused heaven to cease its exaltation for a full half hour. Well, what happens? Verse 6. Remember, the seven angels are given the trumpets. The incense is poured out on the earth, fiery earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet. Boy, what must that sound like? And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night." The seven trumpets. This is the next set of judgments. You will notice very carefully that the seven trumpets are nested within the seventh seal. We are still looking at what the seventh seal opened up. But I mean, you can imagine, right? You, you open a scroll all the way, you can see everything that's in it. Just as the seven bowl judgments will be nested within the seventh trumpet. So this is one reason among many why I believe you've got to read this in a linear fashion, not just cyclically. Because one thing leads into the next thing. We have the seven trumpets now, which are part of the seventh seal. I believe it is possible, just technically here, that there is some overlap between what we saw in the earthquake of chapter 6, the poured out incense, and these first four trumpet judgments. I don't think that is impossible, that they're talking about more or less the same thing, that it all leads into the next. Uh, or I think I'd give the slight edge to that they're not, but for those that kind of see a lot of similarities, when they're all right next to each other, I don't see any reason why they can't be, but I believe you've got different things happening here. You'll notice every time we look at the seven sets of judgment, the first four are part of a set, and then the remaining three will be distinct. So the first time we had four seals that were the four horsemen. Now we've got these four trumpets that are all together, and they all involve a third of the earth being afflicted by something falling from heaven. The first trumpet, hail, fire, and blood on the earth. Hail, fire, and blood. There have been some heavy metal bands that are in their blasphemy have decided to sing songs about this with, with, with complete ignorance and foolishness, not realizing that it's going to mean their very destruction. 
but hail, fire, and blood. Hail is ice. Burning hail. So it's ice and there's fire and there's blood mixed into it. You talk about a horror scene. that The ice falls, but the ice is burning and there's blood in it. And it burns up the earth. A third of the trees, a third of the earth, and all of the green grass. Later on, we're going to see these proportions increase. Because it seems like whatever affliction is brought to the earth through this is going to grow. It's going to spread throughout the world. So imagine the earth, the grass, and the trees. Imagine the Amazon rainforest being hit with this. Imagine, now I'm not a climate expert. Some of y'all might be into that stuff. I don't know exactly what happens when the Amazon goes up, but it's not going to be good. A third of the grass, well, all of the green grass. So implication being there could be more that would grow back. But all the trees, a third of the trees, the earth, a third of it. Then a burning mountain thrown into the sea. Something like a burning mountain. Now, this is... Uh, this is part of the difficulty of understanding and interpreting Revelation is when he says things like something like, it's like, well, what was it, John? But it's, it's, it's like a burning mountain. So get a picture in your mind of something the size of a mountain on fire being thrown into the sea. Is this the Mediterranean Sea? Is it all the sea? I think it, it refers to all of it. I don't think you can be that tight because this is clearly a worldwide catastrophe. That will turn the sea to blood. A third of the sea became blood. We're going to see by the end of Revelation, all of the sea will become blood. So again, this is spreading. It's going to increase. A burning mountain. I mean, consider the tsunamis that happen when a mountain is thrown into the sea. The coastal cities just being wiped out. And now all the water, all the fish in the water, all the ships, the people that were out on the sea being destroyed by this impact. The third is a star from heaven that he calls wormwood. Wormwood is a Greek word, absinthos. It means bitter. It was a root that had a bitter flavor to it, and it was poisonous in large quantities. The French liquor absinthe gets its name from this. Absinthos. It's bitter. And it comes and it poisons the fresh water. Apparently this is having an impact. Perhaps it's breaking up in the atmosphere. We don't know. But it affects the water and the water becomes undrinkable. And the people that do drink it get sick from it. A third of the fresh water. Once again, by the end of the book, all of the fresh water is going to be poisoned. And the fourth blots out a third of the sun, moon, and stars that reduces the hours of the day. Now let's imagine that something like this is happening. These cataclysmic impacts on the earth. We'll talk about what they might be in a second. But the smoke and the fire that is going to rise up from these things. One of the, one of the uh, concerns that people have, even if there was a limited nuclear exchange, is similar to what happens when volcanoes erupt. That when there is that much ash in the sky, it can serve as a mirror and actually blot out the sunlight that comes through. And that they say that if this were to happen, you hear something called a nuclear winter, this is because when the sun stops shining as hot as it shines, we could potentially send ourselves into another ice age. So now imagine this happening where a third of the sun is blotted out so that only the, the brightest two-thirds of the day is the sun visible. But imagine sunset and sunrise, it's not shining bright enough to break through the clouds. This could potentially, doesn't say it, lead to catastrophic temperature changes on the earth. Imagine another ice age coming upon the world. The northern and the southern hemispheres just being frozen from the bottom up or from the top down. The question that we have is whether these are natural events 
or supernatural events. The third option would be that these are symbolic. I've already explained to you why I believe we're going to take Revelation as literally as we can. Because once you go symbolic, man, your, your range of interpretation is literally infinite. It can mean anything you want. So some people say the mountain being thrown down. Well, the Bible compares nations to mountains, so it's like a nation falling. Well, nations are going to fall, but that, why would a nation falling result in a third of the sea becoming blood? So that's just I, we're going to take this more or less literally. But the question is, are these natural or supernatural events? They're all, in any case, they're all divine in origin. Clearly, this is God's work on the earth. This is the fire pan of the, of the prayers of the saints being poured out on the earth. But... So there have been some, as I kind of just described, Ed Heinsen is the, the leader of this. He's a great uh, prophecy scholar. I actually knew his granddaughter when I was in school, and they're great people, and he's with the Lord now, and uh, I can vouch for his character. Not, that's kind of nice. You can't always do that. But uh, he was convinced that this is describing uh, nuclear exchange. He says, this is the kind of thing that every generation up until this one or the last one would have had to scratch their head and say, I don't know, it seems pretty crazy to me. But ever since the bomb was invented, people could look at this and say, yeah, that could happen. That could totally happen. Now, if you believe that, you're going to have to believe that when John says something like a mountain burning with fire or something like a star from heaven that poisons the water or like hail and blood and fire that John is, is limited by the language of his day or he's just describing something symbolically or poetically that is going to be literal because what else do you really compare a, a bomb of that size? But why would you believe in this? Because it would torch the grass, yes. It would poison the water, yes. And the smoke and the ash would blot out the sun, yes. So there are some that believe that this is describing these ongoing conflicts that the Antichrist is going to face. That things are going to get worse and worse. There's no more restraining Holy Spirit to stop them. That these things begin, that mankind literally begin to destroy himself. Now this is biblically possible. There are places in the Old Testament, I believe Nineveh specifically, where the Lord said, I'm going to rain down hailstones and destroy you like I destroyed Sodom. How that was fulfilled was Babylon coming in and overthrowing Assyria. So they were using heightened language to describe something that seems more mundane to us, but was still the same thing. So it's technically possible. However, if you look at these as supernatural events, the, you can see how strong the parallels are here to the ten plagues of Egypt. Did you pick up on that? The water being turned to blood, the sun not giving its light, the darkness, the hail. So it is perfectly likely, and I think it is simpler, to say that these are just divine detonations from heaven. That God is literally hurling things to the earth. That people don't know what's going on, but it's like Sodom and Gomorrah. Just raining fire and blood from heaven. Great impact. Some people believe that God is going to redirect a meteor shower and slam it into the earth. Because we still do not have a defense against that. If that were to happen today, we're, we're toast. So it could be that that's how God's going to do it. Or it could just be that, like the ten plagues of Egypt, God is just going to make it happen. And I think that it's, it's hard to defend against that view, although I would leave open the interpretation that there could be some of man's own wickedness thrown in here. That God is allowing people to do things like this in order to bring judgment upon them, which is what God often does to bring judgment, isn't it? He delivers people over to the destruction of their flesh. He lets them have their way. But whether these are meteors or missiles or miracles, God is intervening to smite the world in response to the prayers of his saints. Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. 
I saw this verse somewhere recently. I might have been online, but it was like verse seven was in like this flowery pink and yellow painting. And, you know, and uh, I'm like, do you realize what the next verse is? But let's read this. Verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Praise God. Verse eight. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and pursue his enemies into darkness. Which, as far as I'm concerned, put that one on a painting too. Because we want that from our God. We don't have some wimpy God that sits up in heaven and says, oh, I wish I could help. God goes, you don't want me to intervene. Because when I intervene, it's going to be all over. And I love these people enough to be patient. With an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of his adversaries. How many people smugly take the word justice on their lips and say, I just want God to be fair with me. I just want God to give me what I deserve. You fool. You get what you deserve. It's going to be hail and fire and blood falling from heaven. The wrath of the Lamb. So many people today have taken that word justice, like they do with so many other important words, redefined it to mean something else, and now march around saying justice is comparison between one man and another. It's not true. That's not what justice is. Justice is measured against the standard of God's righteousness. And against that standard, every single one of us falls short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can't just acknowledge that, toss it to the side and say, yeah, I know that, but, but let's just not think about that right now. You must. Because if you are guilty, what's the punishment? Everybody wants to brood on what's been done to me. What's been done to my family? What's been done to my life? What's been done to my people? What's been done to my nation? And say, well, that's, that's, I need to get that corrected. And there may be some elements of justice to that. But the overarching justice of the world is God's vengeance and wrath against sin. As God said before the flood, he will not strive with us forever. When man's wickedness reached such a peak before the flood that they began to copulate with demons... The Lord said, that's it. I'm not going to fight with y'all. I am not going to sit down here while you completely flout my authority and tread on my law and despise my righteousness. Judgment's coming. And that's when he called Noah to start building the ark. God's not going to strive with us forever either. God's not going to strive with this wicked world. God's not going to strive with our immoralities forever. He's not going to strive with these philosophers that think they know something and want to denounce God and then encourage people to engage in sexual immorality. People that want to say that there's no such thing as God. People that want to say that Jesus wasn't the son of God and stand there and say it boldly and laugh at it. God's not going to strive with these people forever. The Antichrist will be reigning over a wasteland because that's what sin brings. Sin brings waste not just to the world, but to your life. You look around at all the things and say, why has my life been so terrible? It's probably because of you. Sorry. Your sins, your wickedness, your deception. Well, everybody makes mistakes. Yes, and everybody reaps the consequences of their mistakes too. Don't blame God. When you spend your whole life telling, God can't tell me what to do, and then something terrible happens because of what you did, don't you turn back around to God and say, how could you let this happen? 
The Antichrist will reign over a wasteland. Rather than steward the world, we've poisoned it with our wickedness. And God is going to make what we have done in the spiritual world to come about in the physical world. And it caused all of heaven to catch its breath. Verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying out with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. An eagle. The Old King James has the word angel. Most of the textual representatives have eagle there. Really does not make a difference in this section. Three woes. The word woe, we believe, is an onomatopoeic word. An onomatopoeia, if you remember from school, is a word that sounds like what it is. Bang is onomatopoeia, right? Woe is an onomatopoeic word, meaning when the prophets would go around, they would be wailing, woe to the world. That's where that word comes from. And here comes this eagle crying out, woe to the world. But look what is so astonishing here. He's not crying out woe for what had just happened. He's crying out woe for what is about to happen. As terrible as all of this was, What's coming next is worse. Remember, our timeline is still more or less, the Revelation doesn't always give us timestamps, but more or less at the end of the beginning or the center of the Great Tribulation. The next thing we're going to read about in chapter 9 is a demonic invasion of the entire planet. God is going to unleash and unlock his demon prison called the abyss. Might as well say you ain't seen nothing yet. Up to this point, these are things you can understand. You can understand meteorites. You can understand hail and fire. You can understand poisoned water. You will not know what hits you when the next three trumpets sound. How many foolish people say, well, I'll just wait until judgment day to decide for Christ. That's like saying, well, I will wait until the enemy is at the gates and then I'll start thinking about it. I'll wait until the gate has been broken down and the army is charging through the streets and the city is blazing. Then I'll start thinking about it. People that think, well, when the rapture happens, I'll know and then I can be saved. Really, that's what you want to do? You want to wait until the rise of Babylon and the seas turn to blood and the green grass is scorched up and the sun won't give its light? There are many other people that have not placed their faith in Jesus, and yet they spend all their days saying, I wish God would just come right now. If God's real, why does he just come right now? Amos 5.18 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. What Amos is saying is to these wicked people that thought they were right with God, but were really a bunch of hypocrites walking in sin, saying, God, oh, send your judgment. He goes, why do you want God to pour out judgment? You're going to be the one that gets caught between the hammer and the anvil on that day. It's darkness. It's not light. Those who have not been saved by the grace of Jesus will be destroyed on that day because the grace of Jesus is saving you from that. So if you reject his grace, that's what's waiting for you. God will not allow himself to be mocked. Even in our own generation, can we say that our generation and this nation does not deserve divine retribution? Do we not deserve to be invaded and struck down? 
to have a plague ravage our nation or famine or some kind of disaster? Can you honestly stand before God and say, God, we don't deserve that? Oh, good. Everybody's finally waking up to the fact that homosexuality is coming for the children. So what? It was, it was fine all the way up until now? As long as it's consenting adults? You guys. How can we nurture and cultivate and love and exalt these wicked things and think that God's just going to give us a pass? And let these people get into the church and infect our conscience and tell us, well, you shouldn't even say anything because that's going to drive people away. And pick your poison. It doesn't have to be that sin. But I see these things in the news like you're seeing now. Oh, we're going to boycott this and we're going to protest Pride Month. Good. Where was that when it started? Where was that? Is, is it worse because it's towards children? Perhaps. But is it much? Is it, when you're comparing abominations, what's the difference? That's the problem. We have such a weak conscience and weak heart when it comes to these things that we can't even take a stand until it's so obvious nobody can deny it. Are you going to say we don't deserve judgment from Almighty God? When we come in together, we pray for revival. We can even stand there with arrogance in our hearts. Lord, how dare they? How dare these people? No trembling, no shaking in our boots, no sweat like blood pouring off of us, saying, God, if you don't revive us, we're done. The wages of sin is death. And we are training ourselves to feel no guilt or shame for it. But let those of you who mock the Lord beware, for the end is going to come like a thief. You're not going to know. You're going to be caught unawares. The only one that will know it is there is the one who is watching and waiting for it. Imagine your home broken to smithereens. You trying to walk through the front door and you can't because the stairs have collapsed down in front of it. Everything you love has been destroyed and it's soaked not just in fire but in blood. The grass is smoldering and all the trees that we see around our city are charred, smoking ruins. The leaves are all gone. You have nowhere to go. There's no infrastructure left. You go out with your family. You try to search for water. You finally find some and you drink it and you throw up because it's bitter. You force yourself to drink it because there's nothing else and you die from it. Death reigns. The earth shakes. And yet, and yet, in the midst of all that, heaven does not pity you for that. It pities you for what's about to come next. This is why heaven stands silent. When the pure, undiluted goodness of God is poured out on the earth. What fool came up with the idea that goodness is weaker than evil? They're not, it's not true. God's goodness, God's perfect justice, perfect wrath is so almighty and powerful that it will destroy the world. Even if you do not live to see this day, your destination will be the same as those who live on that day. If you walk in mockery of God, it's a lake of fire waiting for you. You're going to think, oh, death, sweet death will finally carry me away. And then you'll stand before the Lord God. And you'll have to face him. Isaiah 66, the Lord says, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The Lord describes those who have been faithful and have called on the name of His Son, gazing upon those that rebelled 
as their bodies decompose and the worms never die and the fire never goes out and it's abhorrent. You don't even want to look at it. Do not scoff at that day. Oh, they've been saying that judgment's coming since the very beginning. Well, it's lucky for you that it hasn't come yet because if it had, you would have been caught. Your soul is already abhorrent. Your soul is already riddled with worms, smoldering and burning. And if you were to look at it, it would cause you to run screaming. You know what you're like. That's why when you look yourself in the mirror, you don't like what you see. That's why before you go to bed, you need to take a couple extra drinks or another hit. Because you can't sit there in the darkness and think about what you've done. Because it'll catch up with you. Because you know that your soul is abhorrent before God. Your lies. Your lust. Your laziness, your hatred, your pride, your self-indulgence. It's corrupted your soul to where you hear the warning of judgment coming and it causes you to laugh, to scoff in your heart. Judgment is coming. And don't think you're going to be able to weasel out of it with God. Because when God comes to judge, there's no trial. The trial is your life. The Lord already knows who you are. He has all the evidence he needs to convict you, which is death forever in hell. But I come today with good news. With all of that, the fact that the earth is going to be shaken and the grass will be burned and the seas poisoned and the sun will not give its light, that's coming, but I have good news. There is still time. As long as I am standing here talking to you, there is still time. Because the end has not come yet, although it might come today. Today could be the day when all of these things begin. When the church is caught up and Jesus opens the first seal of the scroll and Babylon rises. It's not today. You still have time, to use John the Baptist's turn of phrase, you still have time to flee from the wrath to come. What do I do knowing that this is coming? Run for your life! Don't sit there, oh, I'm going to fight it, I'm going to stand. No one can stand. The angels of heaven, the archangels themselves had nothing to say when they saw what was coming. Right now, the ark is built. The door is open. And there's Noah, or shall we say there's me, standing at the door begging you to get on the boat because the rain is coming. But just as they scoffed at Noah in his day, they scoffed at the thought of judgment in the coming days. Waiting for more to climb aboard and be saved. And Jesus Christ is that door. How do you escape this? Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a mythical figure. He was God, very God, and man, very man. He bore our sins and a brutal death on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he was taking the penalty in himself that you deserve for all that you've done. All that God is going to pour out on the world, he first poured out on his son, Jesus Christ, at Mount Calvary for anybody that would come to him. Because on the third day, he rose from the dead, which is why we're here. He ascended back to his father with a bunch of warnings that I'm coming again. But in the meantime, he said, go tell the world that everybody who believes on my name will be saved. Everyone who comes to Jesus bows the knee to him as king, 
worships him as Lord, renounces their old life forever, and takes up his word as their guide for life, will be saved. The Holy Spirit will regenerate your soul and guide you towards your new destiny. Redemption. And when you've done that, the return will not be darkness for you. It'll be light. It'll be redemption. It'll be an answer to all of your prayers for salvation and help. You have the chance today to be saved, to stop messing around. Stop trying to trick your kids into thinking, this time I'm serious. Or trick your parents, this time I'm really serious about it. If you're not going to do this, just stop coming. Just stop. Because the Lord would rather take you in your sincerity than in this halfway stuff. Because then at least he can deal with you. Then at least he can have a conversation with you. But all this fake stuff, nothing Jesus despises more than a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if you've been in church for 45 years. You've been faking it this whole time just to keep your wife happy, just to keep your husband happy. That's because your daughter would be all upset if you didn't come. I don't know. But as far as today is concerned, the door is still open. You can renounce that old life, bow the knee to Jesus, and come today. Because someday soon, just like that ark, that door is going to be shut. And you will be shut out. And all your pleas are going to go unheard. Can you not imagine that when the rains began to fall in Noah's day, the amount of people that would have run up to the door banging on it, Noah, let me in! Noah, please, I believe now, let me in! But as the waters rose and rose and rose, their cries got quieter and quieter, trying to scale the walls, but it's covered with pitch and now it's wet. It begins to rock off of its foundations. And as they slip beneath the waves, their last thought must have been, why did I wait so long? You today, why would you wait until your deathbed or until your fun is over? You can play that game your whole life. The choice is yours today. Would you rather stand beneath the blood and fire of heaven's deadly rain? Or would you rather be safe in the beloved bosom of Jesus Christ? The choice is yours. Jesus has done everything that is necessary. And I have done my job by proclaiming the truth to you today. Now you must choose. Leave behind this crooked generation. Why do you want to be like them? As Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, save yourselves, save yourselves from this crooked generation, for it will be woe to the world when the Lord has come. 